majority of consumers today happy to pay more for products with a sustainable backstory, there's money to be made from environmental credentials, which makes falling into the greenwashing trap a bigger temptation than ever before. But it's a deceitful practice that can backfire, eroding customer trust, damaging credibility, and even exposing you to legal risks and penalties. Enter How Good, an independent research company with the world's largest ingredient sustainability database, which works with CPG companies of all sizes, from Danon to Quinn Snacks, to analyze the environmental and social impact of their products and ingredients. With the Federal Trade Commission looking more closely at green marketing claims, how good is providing the data needed by brands to meet sustainability goals and avoid greenwashing? We catch up with Christina Lampert, Director of Growth and Innovation for Howgood, to find out more. Christina, thank you indeed for joining me today. Firstly, is greenwashing becoming more common? Thanks for the question, Gil. I think it's a valid question. I, I, I think there's a couple of ways to answer that. I don't know that it's becoming more common or less common, but what I have seen, especially with some of the bigger brands, is that the scrutiny to assess the claim that could be thought of as greenwashing is becoming a lot sharper. So what I'm seeing is that a lot of legal teams are actually spending less time maybe on the claim itself and actually spending a lot of time assessing the data that's powering the claim to make sure that it can withstand the scrutiny so that it doesn't become um, an assumption or accusation for greenwashing. So that's kind of what I'm seeing in this space. And I think because of that, um, it's not that there's less claims coming out. It's just the time to really go to market and spend time kind of uh, substantiating that is becoming greater. For those not in the know, can you explain what greenwashing is? Yes. So it's really interesting. I talk to this, you know, I talk about this with my friends and, and they'll even say, like, what is greenwashing? So I think it's certainly worth spending a couple minutes on here uh, to boil it down. <laughs> We as consumers have done a great job creating demand for sustainable products, which is incredible. And so what we're finding is that there's a lot of companies trying to capitalize on this demand, which makes sense. Um, but what's happening is they're going to market with a lot of claims that aren't really substantiated. They're kind of fluffy. They're kind of generalized. And what's happening is a lot of consumers are being misled in terms of the claim lining up with their values and making decisions based on based on that. So um, to sum it up, it's basically, you know, something that makes a consumer think that a company or a product or a brand is greener or actually has a net positive impact um, that's that's greater than what's actually happening in reality. Now, I believe there are actually different types of greenwashing. Can you drill down into these for me? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so there's a couple of types that are coming to mind, and I have a, you know, a few examples for each of them. But I think one that's really important, especially right now, is companies are making claims and they're kind of hiding trade-offs. And so an example of that is we've been seeing in the market right now, so many products are using compostable packaging. 
Okay. And for the consumer, they're like, okay, this is great. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, compostable packaging can be thought of as bio-based plastics, which essentially means that the feedstocks are renewable. They're derived from corn, potatoes, wood cellulose, and a couple of other sources there. Um, mm-hmm. And we, you know, right off the bat, think that that's better because they're not derived from petroleum-based plastics. But that's right. not, that's like the furthest thing from the full story. So when we think about you know, what a consumer does with compostable packaging, the reality is that in order to actually be composted, the biodegradable bio-based plastics actually have to end up in these extremely right conditions, such as industrial composting facilities. So they have to have exposure to UV light, moisture, high temperatures, strictly regulated for them to actually break down appropriately. And there's only 200 industrial composting facilities in the U.S. that guarantee these conditions, which serve less than 5% of the population. On top of this, when compostable packaging gets to these composting facilities, composters don't even accept them most of the time because they don't produce good compost and are viewed as contaminants. And so this is, to me, definitely misleading for consumers who think that, you know, Compost, composted, or excuse me, compostable packaging is right off the bat, eco-friendly, and things along those lines when it's really hiding so many of the trade-offs in the full picture, right? They're not generally recyclable in most municipalities and things like that. So that's just one example there. That's very interesting. Something I didn't even know either. Is this just an ethical dilemma or is it actually a legal issue? I, you know, I was thinking a lot about this question you know, given that our decisions are guided every single day by our moral principles, I think that it's certainly an ethical dilemma, right? Right. Um, Every day we're thinking about things that are important to us. And for a lot of us, that's environmental and social impacts about the decisions that we're making. So um, I would definitely say, yeah, ethical dilemma for sure. And we're also thinking about how consumers spend their money, right? Consumers... We're working our tails off every single day to make this money, and we want to spend it in ways that align with our morals and our values. And so if there's something out there that's misleading and not actually allowing us to do that, um, yeah, I think there's definitely an ethical element there. And then I would also say that a lot of these products that do you know, claim that they're green or sustainable, whether or not that's greenwashing, are sold at a premium in a lot of cases. And mm-hmm. so um, I think there's there's that, that element to it as well. So absolutely both ethical and legal, I would say. Can you mention some of the companies in the US that have been called out for allegedly caught greenwashing? Sure. So there's one example that definitely made headlines not too long ago where the National Advertising Review Board recommended that JBS USA stop making aspirational claims to meet net zero. And so what happened was a nonprofit, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, essentially um, challenged this via that body. And so this really brought to fruition the you know investigation if, if JBS essentially had a plan on how they were going to meet that target. Um, and so what they found was that they did you know have a plan um, in place, 
But what the headlines essentially said is that JBS um, was going to pull those at large. And so I think it just goes to show, you know, another type of greenwashing is like forward thinking, aspirational things rather than, you know, what's actually happening today um, and making the consumer think, hey, just because we sent this target, you know, uh, we're sustainable without essentially going into the details of how they're going to meet that target. And so I think it's just a wonderful lesson for the industry. Like, it's so incredible that all of these companies are putting these plans in place to hit net zero. But I think this example really showed and proved that alongside those targets, it really needs to become public. Also, what's the plan to get there to essentially substantiate that at large? Just how aware are consumers of greenwashing and is it impacting their buying behavior? I think... I don't know. It's tough to say. There's so many different types of consumers. I mean, you're talking to someone who likes like an hour, I feel like at the shelf, like looking at the ingredients, researching them, especially things that I'm like putting on my body or into my body. So um, I think it really, again, depends on that level of scrutiny that that the consumer is at in terms of like what they know and how into this space they are. Um, but I think generally speaking, if we're thinking about a conventional consumer, no, I, like I don't think that they're aware. I generally don't think that we have the time to be aware. I think mm-hmm. so much of our life is shaped by marketing, um, just even growing up. And so um, I think, yeah, I, I would say definitely not at large. But I will say that what I'm seeing in this space is that a lot of these consumers are following micro influencers who are essentially taking the time to unpack the research, to unpack the claim, to actually do the digging. And so that's definitely a mechanism uh, in terms of how, you know, this is impacting a consumer's buyer behavior, just in terms of the different forces that they interact with. Talking about that, how does How Good operate? And how can you help producers, specifically those in my target audience in the bakery and snacks industries? So if you haven't heard about How Good, we're the world's largest ingredient and product sustainability intelligence database in the entire world. And so if we're thinking about bakery and snack manufacturers, we know that the majority of environmental and social impact comes from the ingredients that are selected and essentially how and where they're sourced from. So essentially what we do is we'll help food designers in our platform understand and see the different impacts for, let's use an example of flour coming from Kansas. We can instantly start seeing that flour coming from Kansas is going to have a different carbon footprint and high risk water impact profile compared to flour coming from Idaho, as an example. Mm -hmm. Then we can go even deeper and we can start understanding the trade-offs between ingredients. So we can start understanding how does pea flour coming from Minnesota differ in terms of sorghum flour, right? Maybe we know that sorghum flour has more nutrition, has a lower carbon footprint and a lower high-risk blue water impact. That might be a really great fit to reduce our overall product impact for the formulation we're designing. And then... Outside of that, we can bring all of that into the market. So a lot of you know, bakery manufacturers are essentially doing this work to improve the impacts of their products, but don't necessarily have a mechanism to communicate it to their retailer buyers, to their investors, to even their consumers in a simple, easy and digestible manner. And so what we also do is say, OK, how does this product score 
to you know, the bakery category at large. And so it makes it really easy to talk about sustainability externally. In addition, designers can also see, as well as marketers, does this product qualify for how good's climate friendly attribute? Does it qualify for how good's water smart attribute? And so they can start to see and paint a picture for, yeah, what's my you know, um, substantiated sustainability story here that I can go to market with and celebrate all of this wonderful work that I've done. You mentioned that How Good is a global company. Do you also work with companies of different sizes, from big companies down to small startups? Absolutely. Yeah, we work with every size food company, and it's really magical, I would say, regardless of the stage. So I think with a lot of you know the larger CPGs, um, a lot of the time their supply systems have already been so built, and so a lot of the work is either understanding where the quick wins are in terms of a sustainability story and, again, substantiating that, bringing that to market, um, and also a lot of the renovation and innovation work to improve. Um, I would say that for the smaller startups, they typically come to Howgood and they're like, look, we've started from the beginning. We have, you know, a biodynamic, regenerative supply system. We've done all this work to source ingredients in the right way, and we really need a data partner to communicate that to our investors to scale in retail, to get more shelf space, to differentiate us more against conventional. Um, And so there's so much value, yeah, I would say for both bigger brands as well as smaller brands. Please, can you tell me more about your Lattice platform? Yeah, so the Lattice platform is essentially bringing all of our research to the fingertips designers of the sustainability marketers, of the procurement professionals. And so really what it allows everyone to do is, you know, look at a product, look at an ingredient that's being sourced, look at a whole portfolio and start to do the work to baseline environmental and social impacts. We have eight standard core impact metrics in our platform like soil health, high risk blue water, land use, animal welfare, you name it. Uh, And we also support things like deforestation risk and, and things like that. So essentially it allows, yeah, all of these stakeholders to baseline Uh, actually make innovation improvements. So that could look like scenario planning. If I swap this ingredient out, how does that change my impact? And essentially, what are the trade-offs? If I do whole portfolio scenario planning, so if I switch to this supplier or if I redistribute an ingredient elsewhere, what does that look like? So it's a lot of amazing baselining work, scenario planning work, um, and then also reporting and communicating externally. Sustainability goals obviously vary between companies and brands, but what is the general trend that you've seen in 2023? In terms of themes as it pertains to sustainability goals, what we've been seeing and learning and hearing from all of our partners is that, especially prior to working with Howgood, they were kind of using like if you will, average data to do that baselining and innovation work. And so if you're, you know, sourcing flour from Kansas and all you're able to access is an emission factor or a carbon footprint for flour coming from North America, it's really, really, really hard to get the insights to see how you can change to reduce impact if that's all you're working with. And so the general theme is essentially all of these companies are realizing that in order to meet their goals and have insights to reduce or improve, they need to get far more granular data 
in order to meet those goals. And that can mean, you know, working with Halgood to get more granulized on the ground impact profiles for these ingredients specific to how they're produced and things along those lines. It could also mean getting supplier information, which we also support. Um, but regardless of that mechanism, there's so much there's so much there. And a lot of brands are kind of designing a plan to get more granular data at large. In this era of instant communication, what are the best methods for a brand to get across its sustainability story? Yeah, so I've, I've studied this a lot um, and I'm happy to extrapolate just a couple of themes. Mm -hmm. I think if you know a listener is gonna take home anything in terms of communicating sustainability to a retailer, uh, you know, their buyer or directly to a shopper, it's, it has to demonstrate relativity. So out of all of the peer-reviewed consumer behavior literature that I've looked at in order to actually drive change as it comes to consumer decisions anyways, um, if you're communicating, the consumer has to understand, okay, I understand that this is the carbon footprint, but how does that compare to other you know, products in the category or how does that compare to food at large? And Good. so there's two ways that a lot of you know, manufacturers and brands can capitalize on this and, and exercise relativity. Uh, the first one is assessing your product for front runner indications. So a front runner indication could be, you know, how good's climate friendly attribute, which essentially is telling the consumer that the product has a cradle to gate carbon footprint lower than 70% of all of the grocery products that Howgood has assessed. So it's telling the consumer it's the best of the best in terms of, you know, carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, the other mechanism to exercise relativity is comparative claims. Um, so we work uh, on these a lot at How Good, and this is essentially doing the claim and assessing with the data to say this product has a carbon footprint lower than, uh, you know, or this, this product's carbon footprint is 70% lower than the conventional product in the category or something along those lines. Um, same thing with like land use and water impact and, and things we've seen with a lot of the plant-based meat companies. Um, and I would also say that in terms of telling your sustainability story to a retailer, we produce sustainability scorecards, which, is, which essentially tell the retail buyer, how does this product score in comparison to you know, the bakery category at large. So that's really important, I would say, as well, to provide that visual unlock kind of on the graph in terms of environmental and social impact. Getting back to greenwashing, how do you see the greenwashing scenario playing out in the food industry going forward? I think there's, it's not that the data is just coming out, but I think more people are looking at the data and starting to really internalize that when we think about food and food emissions, the reality is that packaging is only making up on average 5.5% of all of these emissions attributed to a food product. Right. And what we're seeing in the market is that's what everyone's talking about, packaging. And so there's just, there's already starting to be, but I know that, you know, the brands that start talking about what happens on farm land use change, right? Which is where 71% of the food products impact actually comes from. Um, mm -hmm. The brands that actually decide to be transparent, talk about their work in these stages, I really think are gonna win uh, and we'll you know, be able to really appreciate that first educator opportunity that they're executing on. 
Um, so I think that this is going to happen, right? I think that consumers are going to start to understand that this is where the majority of impact comes from and really pay attention to those stages. And I think these packaging financials, while absolutely important and, and may differ based on the food category, um, I think they're really going to kind of become less saturated and we're going to see more of those first educators out there. Can you tell us of some of the companies that you've partnered with and specifically their targets that they may have achieved? Yeah, so I can speak to a couple of our customers. I mean, we work with CPGs like Danone, uh, General Mills, Berea, and we also work with food grocers like Sprouts, for example, as well as Aval Del Hayes. Um, and so while, you know, I don't know that I have very specific examples here. I can just share that generally speaking, a lot of these companies um, have certainly set net zero targets, have certainly set, you know, scope free reduction targets with the science based target initiative. And like we were just talking about, a lot of these companies are looking at the data, understanding that the majority of their scope three is coming from purchased goods and services, which is essentially the raw materials and ingredients that they buy to formulate. And so that's why essentially they're working with Howgood to really get the data to unlock what changes they can make um, or celebrate in the market that you know helps them meet their targets faster. And I would say that the the wins essentially or um, things that have deemed to be successful is finally getting this impact data into the hands of R&D, into the hands of formulators who have so much power for deciding when ingredients are done and, and also putting it into the hands of procurement professionals um, so that they can evaluate their suppliers in order to meet these targets faster. Those are really stakeholders who in the past haven't uh, kind of been close with this data, but in order to meet these targets, I mean, we have to start uh, using them in decisions. So how good's really proud to kind of be a partner in that front. So what is your takeaway message? My takeaway message, I would say for listeners, is if your end goal is to make a claim, right, and talk about your sustainability story, you really can't do that if you haven't yet assessed the impacts of the ingredients that you're sourcing to formulate your product, given that that's where the majority of environmental and social impact comes from. Um, and so I know that's a bold statement, but I think that that would be my key takeaway message. And I'm also appreciating it's so hard in food because, you know, the more processed the ingredient can be, the less transparent it is in terms of where it's actually coming from. But um, if you yeah, ever need any help in terms of like just that starting point, um, please feel free to reach out. And I think the other key takeaway is you may have your product formulation and you may actually qualify for a sustainability claim out there just based on what you've already done. So there's so much opportunity, but um, I would say that, yeah, great place to start right there.